As a warning, this podcast series contains material about emotional and physical trauma that may be upsetting to some audiences. When I was incarcerated, I wanted to cry so many times, but I never did. It wasn't until one of my best friends went home, right here, Jeffrey, that I, I broke down and cried. It, I just cried in front of a unit of 90 people in a prison. You know, tears were running down my face and I was tasting them. I was tasting the tears. Tears of joy for you going home, tears of pain from being in prison and being away from my family. There was just a mixture of tears for different reasons. Did you feel any embarrassment just being on the tear in front of a whole bunch of guys full of Absolutely not. testosterone? To and be honest, I, that memory is like it was yesterday. I remember when I started crying, I remember you saying, bro, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And you grabbed me and you put me in a headlock and you, somehow you like you went into your stairs. shirt like a turtle and you started like crying too, but you were still hiding in the thing I loved about that moment is you try to hide me. I remember you trying to, you put your arm around me to make sure you could shield me. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it was a vulnerability that we shared. Yeah. I was kind of open with it, but I was still like enjoying that my big brother was protecting me at that, in that moment. But now we broke barriers. We yeah. broke barriers, man. I, people came up to me and jokingly said, oh, you, you crying. Mm-hmm. You two weren't even liking each other last week. Yeah. You're crying that he's going home. Yeah. That's my brother, yeah. man. We fight. That's what brothers do. Yeah. But they were saying things, but I know deep down inside, we made it easy for them to be themselves. From the greater Boston area, you are listening to My Turn Conversations. Brought to you by Tufts Education Reentry Network. These are stories of life during and after incarceration told by people who've lived it and are working to overcome the odds. I met Jeffrey when I made it to Concord Medium. We got close because we both had a hunger to learn. We, we clicked up because we had a lot of mutual friends and we happened to be on the same housing unit. And one day we had a conversation about books and I sh- told him some of the books I read and he ch- uh, told me some of the books he read and from there we just talked about the books we were reading. So I spent many days in front of his cell. He, his cell was like a library. He had a bunch of different books in it from George Jackson, but in my eye, I remember him lending me that book and, and he told me how many days I had to read it before he wanted it back. How do you remember the beginning of our friendship? I remember being in my cell. Um, he brought a book called Our Prisons Obsolete, written by Angela Davis. I, I read it while I was locked up in the maximum security penitentiary and then we, when I got there, he, we spoke about the book and he had a lot of important views, and it, it opened my eyes to how intelligent he was. When I first read Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete, it made me feel connected. Throughout my entire incarceration, I put a lot of blame on myself. When I read that book, I know that blame went away. I felt like connected to a much, longer, uh, a much larger struggle. I felt like a raindrop being a part of an ocean. Like I just felt like I was connected to you know, the struggle of slavery, the struggle of everybody that's incarcerated. And that helped me really see things differently. You know, I started to realize that there was more, more factors than myself that played a role to my incarceration. 
and that made me feel liberated. I remember like the walls feeling like they weren't there, like the sun was coming through. How'd it make you feel? Upset, angry. I don't know, it, it, it drew a lot of different emotions out of me, only because a lot of what was spoken about in the book, I. I I knew it was factual, um, especially when she talked about, you know, the prison industrial complex and how, I, I mean, it resonated with me automatically because I was in the belly of the beast at that point in time. And yeah, it definitely woke me up. When's the first time you read Angela Davis's Our Prisons Obsolete? It was 2014, I believe or 13, I was in Surly Max. It was probably like day eight of like a two week lockdown. A person had just been murdered on the unit. He had been beaten to death with a cane. And so we weren't able to actually pass books back and forth because they had obviously the outside homicide unit come in and they had, you know, the tear kind of in a fashion where nobody was able to communicate with each other, do anything. And I remember getting the book actually out of the library in the, um, in the maximum security prison I was at. And it sat on my, sat near my bunk for probably weeks before that. But at that point in time, I was, I was desperate for some type of entertainment at that point, being locked in a cell for 24 hours. And I started reading it and I fell in love with that book. Tuffet is a program that was introduced to Conquer by Tufts University. The program gives inmates the opportunity to earn an associate's degree. One aspect of the program was the Inside Out program where Tufts University brings in students and teachers and they actually teach a class with the inmates on the inside. It kind of gives us a humanizing and a collegiate experience all at once. What, what made you or what compelled you to feel like signing up for the In-N-Out course that we didn't make it in? Because we didn't make it into the first In-N-Out course, I remember that. So what compelled you to kind of sign up for it? You. Not just you, but everybody that I was in the prison with that had that eagerness to learn. I gravitated to people who wanted to learn. So when the program came and everybody was signing up and the ones that were, you know, the ones that I hung out with were getting accepted, I was... I was just waiting for my letter. Mm -hmm. Then when I got mine, and I know you got yours, and my other friends, we were, we were all in that program. It excited me. How about you? What compels you to sign up for the Inside Out course? Speaking to one individual, he said something that stuck with me. And it made me always question everything that I came in contact with, right? And what he said was, condemnation without affirmation is the apex of ignorance. And that always kind of stuck with me. It never left. And that that kind of propelled me to just always, always search for something deeper than what was on the surface. So when I when the opportunity presented itself to being um, the first cohort that we found ourselves in. Honestly, for me, it was more about getting out of jail. Like, I was looking at it like, let me get out of jail. Let me hurry up and get the good time. 
because that's what they were giving off of participation. It was giving you a reduced time off of your sentence, and it changed. It changed. I had to kind of my views on it changed. I had to kind of step back for a second and think with that perspective that um, that individual gave me, and kind of engage with the material from that perspective. class, the, the class that we took on philosophy impacted everybody because we all had a particular way of thinking that we that we had and we were open to different ways of interpretation to, you know and I think that changed a lot of things. The one thing that I can honestly remember about that philosophy class had nothing to do with a particular assignment. It was more about what we were reading in Plato's Republic and I remember I asked Ramel and um, Kintel if they could write me a short paper about what they thought that I could do better or work on better as a person. And they wrote it and gave me honest feedback <laughs> that I needed to hear, but I took it and absorbed it. And I don't think if it, if it had not been for that philosophy class, we probably wouldn't have been thinking outside the Boston. I probably wouldn't have even thought to have somebody write me purely based off of things that they didn't like about me. I don't think I would have did that, but it was cool. The philosophy, the philosophy class was really big for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Because most of the time in prison, that's what we do. We debate all the time about sports and music and movies. So philosophy introduced us into a new way of debating about other things outside of those topics and we learned so much about the philosophers and they had all these funny names Plato, Socrates, Thrasymachus and we used those names with each other as like nicknames and that caught that caught fire like we were doing that outside of class and people seeing us talking and being joyful about, about what we were learning and we had a glow about us that, you know, we started to hold class on the units, right? Like we were having class on the units. I became a professor, I became a student right on the unit. And we were just like slowly converting, you know, that prison into college. When you come out on the tear and you see maybe 50 guys, some not even participating in any type of school programs, are sitting there enjoying the conversation, or intellectual debate amongst people in the class. I'm talking about all different age groups, varying from people who just walked into the building to people who've been down 20, 30 years. Everybody participated. The ethics ball is a structured debate where two opposing teams argue using philosophical approaches. Preparing for the ethics ball changed the way we argued. We learned to use I statements, not to generalize our opinions like they're based in fact. And I think just that alone helped us develop better relationships with each other. The way we communicate with each other started to improve. And you've seen groups of 50 people hanging out with now, where before there was only like, it was all broken off into ciphers, right? That, so there was, a, there was a, a movement, a positive movement going on. The pushback was from the police, like Jeffrey mentioned. They really didn't like that we were receiving the education for free when they're paying for their children to go to school and we're not. So there was there was some jealousy there. The ethics bowl was a unique experience only because the way arguments were shaped in the ethics bowl kind of reshaped the way people argued in real life, 
Like people started using philosophical perspectives to argue when prior to that it was like I'm punching you in the face and we're going to the hole. Like so people really started opening up and actually having discussions about certain things that or certain topics that were uncomfortable, whether it was about family life, relationships, whatever it was, people use like this philosophical approach to explain that. And I think it was cool. Definitely was a. It definitely had a family feel to it. I think the most important aspect of it all was that we were all in a place together that we would not be at otherwise outside of this, outside of the school program, and being in that particular area. Everybody had their prejudices. Everybody had their preconceived notions about each other, but. When it came to like schoolwork and when it came to like just being on top of each other for doing the schoolwork and participating and showing up to class, everybody was accountable for everybody. That was the one time in prison where I've visually seen the culture change and like you could you hear chatter about people doing things, but visually seeing how the units change, how the call for movement was even different. Yeah. When COs called movement for the H building, then we had to go to school, how that was different. And it was some good, some was bad. I mean, you also have to realize that although we were doing a good thing, it was still a pushback from the DOC because if you turn this prison environment into a college environment, then these people don't have job security anymore. I think whenever you do something outside of the norm, there's always a pushback. There's always a judgment that comes along with it. I think the one thing that kind of made people feel more comfortable gravitating towards it than pushing back against it, unfortunately, was, I guess you can say, the reputation that came along with some of us that was involved in the program. We weren't perfect angels, and people knew that. And so when people seen the transition from where we were at to where we were currently at, where we've been to where we were currently at, I think a lot of people respected the maturity and wanted to be a part of that. I want to know because the program kept me busy and I wasn't focused on other people anymore. I was focused on doing my work. Hmm. I, I was, I had to be like the most dedicated student on the block because I had to work twice as hard as my fellow classmates. They, I, they were just completing assignments way faster than I was. So I was like kind of like the face because I was at that table every day struggling to write these papers, to do my homework. So when people see me, I was, I was 100% dedicated to school. I'm more concerned with the people who wanted to learn with me, the people who came and sat down with me and helped me. I don't know about the people who didn't like what we were doing. I don't know their opinion and I don't really care for it. Yeah, I've seen my dedication to school bring people closer to me. I was just amazed at how smart they were. They knew, they were teaching me and I was teaching them about this, the topic, some topics, but they knew more about some of them than I did. When we were on a unit together, Jeffrey would take 30 minutes and write an essay and he'll get a good grade. It would take me two hours to write an essay to get half the grade or close enough grade to him. So I felt I didn't have confidence in the beginning being next to all of these uh, giant figures. You know, I was sitting beside him and another friend of mine who also is big in stature and in, in intelligence. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a difficult, 
because I tried so many different styles and so many different ways to write paper. One of the common ones was, you know, people told me to f just look at it like, you know, the introduction, the body, and the conclusion. You know, state your argument in the beginning, and just the way to format it. Can you explain what the environment is like while trying to complete work in the prison environment? So there's a lot going on in prison, especially on the housing unit where there's 45 cells, there's 90 people all on this the small unit, and we're you know, there's eight phones, there's eight people on the phone, there's people watching TV, there's people yelling, there's people cooking, there's people playing chess, people playing cards, there's people working out, people taking showers. So to try to focus on doing your homework was a challenge itself. If you had a cellmate that was not in school, it made it even harder because now, you know, you're in the cell, you're trying to focus on writing a paper, but he's, you know, watching a sports game and you're being distracted. So I just try to find time where I could just dedicate to school without the distractions. So I ended up moving in a cell with someone who was in the program with me, and that made it easier for me to really like start writing and getting my thoughts on paper. What was it like for you to write papers inside? Scraps of paper everywhere. <laughs> I used the pad that I bought on Canteen. I mean, my, the way that I write is different anyway. I could write the same sentence a thousand times on different pieces of paper, and just because I don't like the way it looks, I could trash it and not write it at all. In a weird way, I found it easier to actually write in prison. Not easier to write in prison, I don't want to say that. I found it easier to write papers in prison because it wasn't as personal as writing letters. Letters was hard for me to write. So writing papers in prison was kind of like, okay, writing about a particular topic, let me just write about it. There's no, there's no visceral reaction to it. It's just my thoughts on a piece of paper about a topic and that's it. I had a hard problem writing in prison when it came to like personal thoughts. You know what I want to ask you? I've noticed you write real small. And I didn't know at the time, but after speaking with Contel, he told me that you gave him an explanation on why you write so small. And he told me it's because you feel like you don't have a voice. But I've noticed your progression, and it seems like you've been speaking louder. I don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> I've been trying. I've been trying. But um, it's funny you bring that up because we were just... We were just around, I don't know what we were doing, but we were just analyzing a lot of things about ourselves, and that kind of came up. Even the way that I project my voice and how soft-spoken I am kind of reflects how I write on paper. It's because it's not that you're dealing with childhood trauma, but it comes from that. It comes from not really being heard, people kind of silencing your voice. And even though I feel like I'm, I'm strong and I'm courageous and all of that thing but you still deal with a lot of self-doubt in the process of things so it's just a constant battle but so we spoke this past saturday in, in your fashion you're speaking low but louder than i'm used to and you know someone intervened and asked the audience hey can you guys hear him and everybody in the back from every table raised their hand did that make you feel a type of way not you really heard? no not really i think Throughout the course of time, I kind of understood that even though I wasn't the loudest person, I think the words that I, the words that I let come out of my mouth speak loud for me. So it wasn't no need. I never felt the need to be like the loudest person in the room. I've never felt like that. I don't like attention. I hate it, but I deal with it. And I mean, it was cool. So bro, what was it like when I left? It was hard. 
It was hard and easy, honestly. It was hard and easy. It's, it's like I, I had, you know, a lot of stuff going on. What made it easy was before Jeff left, before we had that moment on the tear, Jeff wrote everybody in the class a letter. And he wrote, matter of fact, he wrote me two letters. He wrote me one, as he mentioned earlier, he asked me, hey, bro, I, like, I respect you. You're my brother. I want you to write me a letter and tell me what I could do to work on myself. This was right after Jeffrey got into a fight with another friend of mine. We were, we were all friends, but, you know, two of my friends got in a fight. And I was mad at Jeffrey at the time because I'm cool with both of them. And I felt like, you know, we were all in prison. We were bitter. We had a lot of stuff going on. We were depressed. And some of us dealt with it in ways better than others. And I felt like Jeffrey could improve his way in dealing with some of the stuff he was going through. So I, I wrote him a letter and I told him how I felt to see how much my letter meant to him and how seriously he took it. It's a beautiful thing, honestly. And the letter he wrote me before he left just, in, just inspired me. It, it motivated me. It gave me hope. And it, it made me go back into that class and turn up, honestly. That was the, the good part. The hard part was that he wasn't there and I made sure no one sat in that seat. Honestly, I mean, even if they filled this seat, I don't think it would have filled the space. But... Not that I think highly of myself. It was just the way that classroom operated. Everybody had a particular position that they played. And as much as he likes to make it seem like he learned so much from me, I learned more from him. You learn so much more from a person that knows that they lack certain things. I know I lack certain things. And sometimes I don't I don't want to say hubris gets involved, but sometimes you learn to like especially when you come from like an environment where not too many you don't hear I'm proud of you too much you don't hear too many people say I believe in you at all actually I don't think I've ever heard my mother or my father say I'm proud of you or I believe in you so to have people feel that way about you it was almost mandatory that I wrote those letters because it was a real bond and a real friendship that I had with those individuals first seen Jeffrey 2022, like a year after I was released. When I moved back to Boston, I met up with Jeffrey. I hit him up on Snapchat. I got a Snapchat. I hit him up and he came to pick me up and we went to, we went to his house and there was a, he had a cookout and I ate there and we played chess. That's one thing that me and him did all the time in prison. We played chess together. And he told me when he came home, that he missed me so much and he thought about me so much that he named a character in chess on his phone after me. So he was eager to play me. He was been playing, yeah, so he prepared to play me in chess for a long time. When I got to the cookout, he whipped out this chess board like out of nowhere and we played chess. Yeah, that was a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I feel real misunderstood and he gets me in a weird way. Honestly, because me nicknaming him the computer, him and chess was kind of just a way to kind of feel some type of comfort, I guess. Especially because the relationships I had with people when I got out of prison weren't as strong as the relationships I had with people in prison. And, you know, it's hard to even talk to family about it because they're like, in prison, there's no good people in prison except for you, as if though I'm the only me that's in prison, (laughs) right? So, 
you know, it was kind of hard to articulate that. And it was even kind of hard to articulate that to him because, you know, you might have conversations on the phone once in a while, but it's kind of hard trying to articulate, like, I'm struggling out here without some type of support. Like, people don't understand that. And it's no, I don't know. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I care deeper than what most people might think. On the surface, it's like, I really don't give a fuck, I guess. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah, on the surface, I really don't, I guess I'm not salon. I could be stoic at times, but I I care deeply about a lot of things, and I guess I don't have a good way to show it. <laughs> I knew he had a heart bigger than his body, but he's definitely said things that let me know he, he has a huge heart. He cares a lot about people in, in ways that was shocking because at first you when I got to know him, you would think he doesn't care about anybody. But I, I realized that was far from the truth. Thank you for listening to the My Turn Podcast. My Turn is a community-based, university-accredited program providing education, mentorship, and career development support to and by those who have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system. My Turn's objective is to provide an opportunity for each participant to rediscover and reframe their skills, interests, responsibilities, and commitments. This podcast is created and produced in partnership with Tufts University Jonathan M. Tisch College of Civic Life. Music brought to you by Elmo Playtest. Learn more or support My Turn at tuppit.org. T-U-P-I-T dot O-R-G.